0: You're listening to the King's Church DC Podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ben. I am one of the pastors here at King's Church. Happy 4th of July. I'm thankful to God. Uh, I just want to pause and say to have grown up here, uh, even with all of its warts. It's a, a real big grace to have grown up in a country with the freedoms that we've been provided, and a country that's trying to work day by day to become a more perfect union. But this morning, I want to talk about something even bigger than that, And that's the amazing truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everybody. Now, for those of you who are new today, we have been going through the book of Acts together as a church. This book starts about 40 days after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. It's basically the origin story of Christianity. In the book, God has essentially rebooted and relaunched and renewed His people through His Spirit, and now they're really bold, they're filled with all sorts of spiritual power, and they're getting the gospel out to everybody. But as we've walked through the book, we've also seen that as the Christian faith has been spreading, resistance to it does as well. We saw just a few weeks ago this guy named Stephen, who was an ordinary Christian, filled with the Spirit, become a target. And in one particular instance, as he's explaining the good news about Jesus Christ to a very hostile audience, it bothers them so much that they unfairly and unjustly kill him. He becomes the first Christian martyr, and this launches a massive crackdown on this new Christian movement. Eventually, Christians start fleeing Jerusalem, essentially to not get arrested or killed, but God uses that in a very powerful way to get the gospel out to more and more people. Uh, The crackdown, we might say, only causes the grassroots efforts to grow more intense. Hundreds and hundreds of Christians flee the city and relocate, and as they're doing that, we read about how they're sharing the good news of Jesus as they reestablish where they're going to live and live out their days. Now, one of those Christians that fled from The persecution that was ensuing was this young guy by the name of Philip. Uh, We were introduced to him last week. We saw how he went up north to a place called Samaria, and without any apostles or church leaders, God used this ordinary guy, Philip, in powerful ways to bring the gospel to the Samaritans. But this morning, we're going to look at how his story, Philip, continued. And we're going to see him have this divine encounter with this Ethiopian eunuch who ultimately will become a Christian, become a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we'll see here really this morning, the main idea of this passage, uh, the main idea of this text is that God and his gospel is for everybody. Let me just say that again, the gospel is for everybody. The good news of Jesus is for all. We'll see that in this text. We'll see that in this sermon, that God wants to reach all. He wants all to have a real relationship with him. Essentially, my outline will be up on the screen. It's pretty simple. Point one, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, Romans chapter, or should say Acts, while I'm really confused this morning, Acts <laughs> chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, and then we'll look at takeaways. Takeaways. So let's look at the passage and see how this unfolds. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So Philip's just returned to Jerusalem, and maybe he's relaxing after his trip from Samaria, and all of a sudden this angel of the Lord appears to him. I'm not sure if this is a vision or a literal angel right in front of him, but the angel essentially tells him to get up and go down south from Jerusalem to Gaza. And of course, this is the same Jerusalem and Gaza of today. Now, just as a side note, it's interesting that this angel of the Lord shows up here. This is very Old Testament-ish. But it's also interesting that for the rest of this passage, we're going to see the Holy Spirit take over and lead him. And that's very New Testament-ish. It's a subtle nod at the fact that now in the New Covenant, the Spirit is the guide and the lead in God's work. But what I don't want us to miss in this, these first few verses is that God is initiating something here. To rise and go toward the south was not something that the church had come up with. It wasn't a ministry or a program Of the church. The church is sitting comfortably in Jerusalem, but God was up to something. He was after one guy, and he was about to use Philip to change this guy's life. Now, a good application for us right out of the gates is that really this shows us the heart of our God. There's just one person here in this passage whom God loves. There is just one person that God wants to bring to himself. And he's about to put together an entire plan to inconvenience Philip to get this one person. It reminds me of when Jesus says, the good shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one. It's an amazing truth that God himself is committed to reaching those whom he loves. And maybe that's you this morning, Maybe you've come into this place, a little school that's been turned into a church, and maybe for the last few weeks or the last couple months or the last couple years, God has been trying to get your attention. And I'd encourage you, continue with us, continue listening on what happens next. The passage continues and says in verse 27, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Now, it's really important to point out that Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch couldn't be any different. They're pretty much opposites. Philip is a young, probably middle-class-ish, light brownish Jewish man who's become a Christian. Uh, Later on in the book of Acts, we'll meet the older version of Philip who's gone on to have four daughters who are Christian preachers. Philip is your man of faith. He's your uh, lovely neighbor who's selfless and loves everybody. But then we meet the Ethiopian eunuch. He's probably a little bit older, and he's extremely wealthy. He's got a very high position in the royal family. And he's in charge of all the queen's money. He's the treasurer, which by the way, if you're interested in student government, that is the best position to have. He's a dark-skinned man, and he's from what would have been northeast Africa today, or what we would call Sudan. He's also a eunuch, which means he was voluntarily castrated. Now, I do get a little bit wheezy, When I think about blood, and I perhaps will start losing my breath, but if you're wondering what that means, you can essentially look it up, but basically it means (laughs) he can't have children, and he's essentially sexually altered. Now, if you're wondering why did people become eunuchs back then, well, the answer is for power and for money. It was a common practice back then. If a person wanted to have a high administrative or a high governmental position and they weren't from the royal family, this was the price to become a eunuch. They were essentially going to be dealing with the princesses and the queens of the land, and so to prevent offspring or to prevent scandal, this was the price. And a lot of people did it because it was lucrative. Now, I thought long and hard about making a joke about male Capitol Hill staffers, but I am not gonna (laughs) drop those jokes today. The point is that this Ethiopian eunuch is very different from Philip. In fact, Jewish men would have prayed back then, they would have prayed every day, Jewish men, oh Lord, I thank you that you didn't make me a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. Jewish men were told essentially, do not participate with people who will defile you. And this is a person that as a Jew, Philip would have been taught to not have association with. But then verse 27 continues, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. So somehow this sexually altered, racially different, and wealthy official fears God. He's somehow conscious of God. And he's gone to to Jerusalem to worship that God. And now he's on his way back to Ethiopia. Now, this was somewhat common back then. Uh, Lots of non-Jews would find faith in God, and they would become Jewish, and they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. Except the problem here is for this Ethiopian is that he would have been totally excluded. In the Jewish law, there was specifically a law that said if you made yourself a eunuch, you couldn't go into the deepest parts of the temple. You were excluded from worship, essentially. You couldn't become Jewish. You would have been denied a lot of basic fellowship and acceptance with God's people because of that status. So essentially, he was done. Uh, He wasn't allowed to worship. He was excluded. So here is this sexually altered, racially different, different and religiously excluded guy. The passage continues, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. So he's in this large chariot and he's reading what it would have been a very expensive handwritten scroll of what we call today the book of Isaiah. It would have been hard to get that because the printing press essentially was not invented yet. Uh, The point is, is he is wealthy. He is rolling up in his fully loaded Escalade with full-out rims, but he's searching. He's reading a book of the Bible. Look at what happens next, verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. In other words, God is on the move. Now, this happens a lot in the book of Acts, around 40 times. The spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and when he speaks, it could be referring to some type of external audible speech, but more than likely, it's some type of internal stirring of the heart. That could mean a sudden deep conviction, perhaps a spiritual burning in the heart, or a longing or a yearning that's sudden and won't go away. For me, when I feel like God's Spirit speaks to me, it's usually a deep impression in my soul, a longing that wasn't there before. And sometimes it's contrary or conflicting to a thought that I previously had. It's different than conscience. It's completely subjective, which means it's open to error. And it's also not provable, a lot like the existence of our souls. But it's there, and it's a mystery. Jesus says his sheep will know his voice and that the Spirit will lead us in all truth. And so this is what's happening. Philip, he's just hanging out, and the Spirit speaks to him. God is pursuing this man, and he's using Philip to do it. Verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. So he runs to him. The chariot's moving, so he's got to catch up. And when he gets close, he hears him reading from the book of Isaiah. Now, this must have been super exciting for Philip. It must have been the moment it clicked that this was indeed God's leading. It was probably a little worship moment for Philip. God was dropping the most easy opportunity in the world to point someone to Jesus right in front of him. We call this low hanging fruit sometimes in the Christian world. Now, this reminded me as I read it of an experience I had a few years back in DC. I was just down the road at an interview with two FBI agents. Don't worry, it was for a good reason. Uh, I didn't know either of them, but I walked in, I sat down, and we did our little intros, and I could tell that they were pretty close friends, and they had worked together for a while. And the one agent starts looking at my resume. And perhaps, I think probably for the first time, looking at the resume, and he starts accidentally vocalizing his thoughts. He says, a church planner? What's a church planner? And the other agent looks at me, communicates essentially with his eyes, looks at me again, and kind of throws up his hands and points to the guy and says, this guy's going to hell. Say what you need to say. (laughs) (laughs) Boom, that was the easiest opportunity to talk about (laughs) Christianity that I've ever had in my life. The text continues, and Philip says in verse 30, do you understand what you are reading? In other words, Philip didn't impose on him. He didn't say, I know what this means. Let me tell you what this means. He asks a question. He gives the Ethiopian eunuch a chance to shoot him down. He doesn't have a canned approach. But notice what happens. Verse 31, and he said, how can I? unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So he responds to this non-imposing question, and he invites Philip to come sit in his chariot to explain the book. Now, it would have been very difficult for the Ethiopian eunuch to understand the book because he was raised pretty far from Israel. Uh, The context, the vocabulary, The themes would have been foreign to him, and so, of course, he invites help. I remember I started reading the Bible at 19 years old for real, and I had the same problems as this Ethiopian eunuch. The context, the vocabulary, and the themes were foreign to me. I remember reading through the Gospels and for the first time seeing uh, ancient farm language and uh, concepts from Uh, the words of Jesus that were confusing to me. Heck, there are still things in the Bible that are confusing to me. But one thing is I invited help. I leaned into my church. I leaned into my pastors. I leaned into my friends. I leaned into commentaries and study guides. And God used those things like little Phillips in my life to explain the meaning better to me. The same is true for all of us today. Please, please don't give up on the Bible because at times it can be difficult. It's sometimes hard. But we were meant to understand it together, to understand it in community, not just to read it alone. And this is exactly what God had appointed for the Ethiopian eunuch in Philip. The passage continues, verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth, in his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? Now talk about divine encounter. Now talk about confirmation for Philip. This is one of the most potent and clear predictive passages in the Old Testament, about who the Messiah would be. It's all about how the Messiah would live a sinless life, how he would come and suffer and die in our place for our sins, how he would be buried with the rich, and that he would be raised to life and be satisfied in all that he accomplished. It's the most bullseye passage about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And the Ethiopian eunuch responds, he asked Philip, verse 34, About whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? This would have been a puzzle for him. We easily recognize these verses about Jesus Christ, but it would have been confusing back then. Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So this would have been the moment that Philip was waiting for. He gets why he's here, and he starts explaining the Bible, a book all about Jesus, to his new friend. Maybe he pointed to things how, uh, for instance, that the book he was holding in his hand 700 years before Jesus came predicted in detail a description about the Messiah who would be born of a virgin, who would be Emmanuel, God with us. And maybe he described how that just happened decades ago in a little town called Bethlehem. Or maybe he pointed out that in the Old Testament for hundreds of years on the day of atonement or Yom Kippur, the high priest who was the mediator between God and man would take an animal, he would confess the sins of the people And then he would slaughter that animal as a substitute for guilty, sinful people. And then maybe he would describe, and maybe perhaps he did describe how that all points to Jesus, who is the suffering servant who comes to die for us, who was slaughtered in our place, our substitute to take away our sins. However, he explained it, the Ethiopian gets it, he becomes a Christian. He believes God loved him and sought him. And the passage adds, verse 36, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. In other words, the Ethiopian does immediately what follows true belief every single time in the Bible. He gets baptized. He makes a public declaration of his true faith in Christ. He goes down into the water and he comes back up. Verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, some take this passage as uh, God the Spirit kind of teleporting Philip away as if it was some kind of type of, of Star Trek. Others take this as uh, a kind of literary way that the Bible is describing Philip finishing his task and moving on. Either way, the point is that from beginning, To the end, this was a divine encounter. And notice really importantly that this divine encounter, it leads to this Ethiopian eunuch rejoicing. Rejoicing means to have great joy or to feel great delight. Uh, But notice, as the Ethiopian eunuch is rejoicing, he's still a eunuch. Uh, He's not all of a sudden free from His work to the godless queen, he's not all of a sudden exempt from making a long and inconvenient thousand-plus-mile journey back to Ethiopia, but he's rejoicing because his greatest problems have been taken care of. His sins were forgiven, his greed, his pride, his lusts, it was done away with through his new connection to Jesus Christ. The opening verse of Isaiah, the very book that he was reading, became real to him. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. His greatest problems were done away with. Not only that, he had absolute access to God. He still couldn't go into the temple. But he knew a better truth now, that one greater than the temple had come into the world. His religious exclusion was over. He now had free access to the deepest parts of worship, complete and total access to God, what the temple offered and more, a relationship with God at any time, any place, anywhere, through Jesus Christ. Not only that, he had a new community of worshipers. He found good news, and that good news actually took someone so different like this Ethiopian eunuch, and it united him to one body, to someone so different like Philip. He didn't need to become Jewish. He found the Messiah, and that changed his life. Now, the truth is, we're all like the Ethiopian eunuch. We're excluded from the presence of God because of our sins. None of us loves God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. None of us loves our neighbor as ourselves completely. Nobody can go in, so to speak. In a real way, we deserve to be excluded. But the good news this morning is that Jesus himself was excluded for us on a cross. On a cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced God forsakenness on the cross, what we deserve. He was excluded so that we could be brought in, so that we could have our sins forgiven, so that we could have a real relationship with God, so that we could have fellowship with his people. That's the best news, and that should make us rejoice. It should make us glad. It should give us great delight. Now, as I mentioned, I have three really big takeaways from this wonderful passage this morning. Number one, find your ultimate purpose In God's story, find your ultimate purpose in God's story. God called Philip to go 165 miles down to Gaza. It's not a place where he liked to be, Uh, but it was all because God loved this one guy. This may have been confusing for Philip, but he went anyways. He realized that it's not about him. And the same is true for us and it needs to be said that this could be a very important thing for some of you to hear right now. The things that have happened to you may not be about you. The things that God has allowed in your life or the things he's leading you to do, it may not be about you. In fact, it's not. It's always been part of a bigger story. I once had an older guy over at DOJ, Who's a believer tell me, I still have not found my purpose in life. Well, our purpose isn't in the stories that we create. Our ultimate purpose is find, is found in joining his purpose, his story, to see our work connected to his work, to see our ambitions connected to his ambitions, to see our relationships, our money, our stuff as a means to glorify God. And leave a legacy for what matters. Christianity is comprehensive. It's not a compartment. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. God is not a compartment. We'll fight him the rest of our lives if we try to compartmentalize him and put him in a box. Find your purpose in him. Sync up your purpose in his ultimate purpose. Number two, Know that Christianity is the most inclusive faith. Know that Christianity is the most inclusive faith. Jesus said the gospel is for every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. Said another way, as we read through the book of Acts, specifically this account this morning of the Ethiopian eunuch, what it's showing us is that Christianity doesn't belong to one culture more than another. Another. The early Christians were shocked at this reality. They were all Jewish. They just assumed Christianity belongs to Jewish culture. It would mainly be contained in Jerusalem. But all of a sudden, like we saw last week, we saw the Samaritans embrace the gospel. A different race. And this week, we see this sexually altered Ethiopian man from really far away, embrace the gospel of Christ. In the coming weeks, we'll see a Roman soldier embrace the gospel of Christ. And the thing was that none of them were becoming Jewish. It was unthinkable. Different cultures, different races, different classes, all becoming believers. To the point where today, just like Jesus designed it, Christianity doesn't belong to one culture More than another. Now, this truth is in direct conflict with the way that most people understand religion and culture. In most colleges and schools today, most people would have a different understanding of how religion and culture relate. They would essentially say that religion is an invention of culture. The thought is that every culture needs cohesion and unity. And so cultures developed big stories, meta-narratives that eventually became religions. Why? So that those cultures could stay together. Basically, they would say the Europeans and North Americans invented Christianity. South Asian cultures developed Hinduism. Far Eastern cultures developed Buddhism. Middle Eastern or North African cultures developed Islam. And basically, boom, that's it. That's all religion really is. It's a child of culture. But a Yale professor, an African named Laman Saman, his book, Whose Religion is Christianity, points out an important fact that's often missed today. He says that every major religion's population center today, except for Christianity, are still concentrated primarily where they started. For example, 96% of all Muslims today live in the Middle East. And in the rest of the world, North America, Europe, South America, and so on, there is only 4%. 96% still live near the genesis of Islam. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia, and so on and so on. But then he points out When you get to Christianity, it's very different. It's the only worldwide religion. 25% of all Christians are in Central, South America, or the Caribbean. 22% are in Africa. 15% are in Asia, and that number is growing fast. 20% are in Europe, and around 12% are here in North America. He says it's worldwide because it's very universal. And it's inclusive. The gospel itself is inclusive. And he gives an example from the African side of things. He says, think about this. An African has always believed that the world is a supernatural place. To be African is to believe that the world is alive. There are good spirits and there are bad spirits. But he says there are problems in that view. What do you do about the evil spirits? How do you get rid of the evil spirits? Uh, They can seduce you and overcome you. How do you get rid of them? He says if an African were to go off to a very secular place, say somewhere like Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or even his school, Yale, what they'll say to the young African is, we're very inclusive. We love inclusion. We love multiculturalism. We even celebrate African food and African garb once a year. But there are no spirits. There are no demons. There is no supernatural. Everything has a scientific explanation. Said another way, the professor writing this book is saying that what they're ultimately saying is, we love your culture, but we're just going to take the heart of your culture out of it. What we're actually hoping you become is a late, modern, secular, individualistic Westerner just like us. He says that's not inclusive. That's ideological, and it's crushing. But he says when Christianity comes to Africa, it goes like this. It challenges and yet accepts Africanness. It says on the one hand, you're right. The world is supernatural. There are spirits. There are good spirits, and there are bad spirits. But there is one who has overcome evil spirits, and through him, you can overcome them too. In other words, he points out that Christianity affirms and yet renews cultures. It helps Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. It's more inclusive, much more, than the people who are talking about inclusiveness. And this is one of the principles that causes the gospel of Jesus to spread like wildfire. It's one of the principles that's so clear in this story today about the Ethiopian eunuch. Finally, trust in the exclusive Christ. Trust in the exclusive Christ. If this story can teach us anything, it's this. Trust in Jesus Christ. The Ethiopian eunuch was on the top of his professional pay scale. He was powerful, he was connected, he has access, but he's riding to Jerusalem, and he's looking for something. He's trying to find God. He had it all, but he was empty, and yet God found him. He trusted in Jesus Christ. Every religion out there says that there is a mountain and there's a different path to climb up that mountain. They all say we're going to find the same God as we climb that mountain. For our Buddhist friends, it's the eightfold path. For the Hindu, our Hindu friends, it's the four pillars and so on and so on. And the thought goes is that as you climb the mountain, you're going to get to God. Now that works if there was never a Jesus Christ. Because Jesus didn't come to the the earth to say, I'm here to show you how to live a better life. Jesus didn't come to the earth to say, I'm here to show you how to climb to God. Jesus Christ came into the world that we live in, that we breathe in, and he said, I am God, and I've come to find you. You're never going to get to the top of the mountain by yourself. I've come because I'm the God that you are seeking. And today, if you are far off from God, it doesn't matter what, you, what, what you've done, what you look like, where you're from, what you've done to yourself. It doesn't matter your race or your class or your age or education. It doesn't matter your marital status, whether you have kids or not. God is open to all. The gospel is for everyone. The community of Christ is open to all. And it starts by trusting in Jesus Christ. God's provision for us, God's salvation to us, the hope of this world. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.